determine if ally was a title that you were going to add to your bio or if it was going to be a way of life you walk in allyship you are acting as an ally welcome to beyond allyship a podcast that helps humans shift their understanding of what it means to be an effective ally and show up in allyship for marginalized communities Let's get it popping. Welcome to the Beyond Allyship Podcast. I am your host, Dr. J-Pop, and I am so excited to have my friend, the extraordinary Dynasty Hunt Harris, because the woman just got married last year, y'all, y'all. I know. (laughs) I keep remembering. I'm like, what's my name? It is Hunt Harris, in case my... (laughs) lovely husband is listening. We know what the name exactly. is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Dynasty is a DEI consultant for organizations, CEO and founder of The Shift. She has also been one of the foundational speakers in building allyship. She comes in and talks to us about, you know, the case for equity in organizations and also how to examine the structure of your business. She is a phenomenal trainer, a phenomenal speaker. I'm just so excited for you to share with the people everything that you do and all of your genius. She has a YouTube channel where she shares all the free tea. She has videos like building an anti-racist business strategy, DEI busy work versus strategic work, which we're going to talk about that one, and being an anti-racist business leader. And I love that you did that because it's just so much free game. Thank you. That you put out there. So much free game. So we're just going to, you know, we're going to talk about some fun stuff first. What is bringing you joy right now? I, you know, honestly, this is so funny, but literally right now, if I take this question, literally just being able to sit for a second, we are five and a half months pregnant. And that means that anytime I'm moving around, I'm like, I used to be able to like, you know, go, go, go. And now I like walk three steps and I'm like, I mean, you to sit. Where's the wall? Somebody let me like rip the wall for a second. So what's bringing me joy right now is sitting for a moment. Sitting. Okay. Bringing you joy (laughs) sitting. (laughs) So tell me how you're taking care of yourself. Because I mean, let's just be real. You're a black woman doing DEI for organizations. You just said you're pregnant, newly married. Like, how are you taking care of Dynasty right now? Yeah. You know, it's been really good to figure out how to say no. And not feel any sort of remorse for that. And so I feel like I've gotten to a really good place where my no's are my no and my yeses are my yeses. And I'm getting really clear with that. And that's been such a powerful way for me to say no and and not feel guilty for saying no to do something that someone might see as productive in order to go sit on the couch or in order to take a walk or to take a stroll, but saying no, because I know that means saying yes to myself. You just mentioned, you're like, oh yes, you got married. You're having a baby. Like what else can you do in six months? Y'all, you want to do it to do it all at the same time. That's what we recommend. (laughs) That's funny though, because I've watching you, I feel like you have such a passion for this work and I would imagine that it's difficult saying no when you are passionate about what you do. It is. You know, it's funny. I literally just had this life work epiphany, if you will. It was one of those mornings. I've had a lot of mornings, y'all, recently where I've also been like, I don't know what my body's doing. So it's 3 a.m. We're going to have Oreos. We're just going to sit and reflect on life. But one of those mornings eating those Oreos at 3 a.m., I I really started to understand that a part of my no, even in DEI work, is saying no to two things. One, saying no to organizations who don't believe that DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, or anti-racism work matters. Because I Mm. found myself sometimes in spaces previously where I was like, if I'm the consultant, it is my job to convince you. And I've gotten Mm. to the place now where I'm like, if you need convincing, I know that there are incredible resources. I know that there's incredible people who have more patience than I do, who want to, and explore that with you and get you to understand why it matters. Mm-hmm. I am not going to say yes in places where I have to explain that to you first, because that is a lot of emotional burden. 
The other thing I realized is, is that there are gifts and spaces for everyone in the DEI space. I am not your healer. I am not Mm. your fuzzy feeling person. And I love those people. And I love taking spaces with them and learning from them. Like I'm the student in those spaces because I think those are such gifts. But I'm the person who's like, okay, you said you wanted to be inclusive. You said you wanted to be equitable. Let's make sure that you're about that life Mm -hmm. and that it's actually operationalized in your work. And I had this like epiphany because I found myself wanting to say yes to people being like, can you come in and help us lead a conversation about how like one person is privileged and the other person isn't and what that means and how they need to understand their privilege. And I was like, I could, I have, (laughs) I know Mm -hmm. how to. And in a non overly arrogant way, I'm good at it, but that's not what I want to be spending my time on. So getting clear about that too has been super helpful in me thinking about how do I keep some joy in this work and how do I keep space for myself? Because I just can't be every DEI woman to every single organization or team. I mean, you're just trying to take it there and we're going to go there because (laughs) I mean, this is, you and I have had these conversations of the self-awareness epiphanies doing this work. So we're going to shift to that. But first I I want, I gave them the, you know, highlight reel in the beginning of your titles and your, you know, what you're the founder of, but I love for people to tell their own journey because I think that's important for people to hear that story. So I want to know your journey here to, to where you are right now as Dynasty Hunt Harris. Yeah, it's a really good question. So I started my post-undergraduate career working in HR. So I did recruitment, I did human resources. And in the first place I did human resources, I was the one of the youngest, one of the most, on paper, people would say you needed seven years. I had like a year and a half. That's a story for a different day. They gracefully let me in. <laughs> I was able to do that work. But I find myself in stasis where I felt like I was the only or the first, the first Black woman, the first individual to be in this certain role. And with that came a lot of pressure. And I found myself in those roles, but not really finding spaces where I could find mentors or people that understood that like first and only burden, what that meant, how to navigate it. And I was also very young and just trying to navigate how to work in a workforce in general. So in my head, I decided that I was going to just work myself up and work my behind off in order to get to the place where I could be in a true power position. So so I thought, get into that, of leadership where I could make decisions and I could make sure that I wasn't the only. Mm -hmm. I didn't want other people to experience that. And so that subsequently led to me taking on various roles where every time I took on a human resources, a talent management, a recruitment role, and I used to have all three under me, I would also say, what's the DEI lens? How are we talking about this? How are we navigating Mm. this? And a lot of the companies that I was working for at the time weren't there yet. They hadn't started those journeys. And so I would be the person that would start the journey on top of all of the work that I was already doing. So not not fun, but also not fun times in terms of the amount of work. And so I started getting to the place in my journey where I really wanted to understand how to make systems more equitable. I really started to see the connecting point of, I can't just be HR and talent over here and DEI over here. I need to figure out like how these two places come together. So started studying Mm -hmm. more, digging in more, figuring out places to learn, and then started changing because I was then in places of power on executive teams where I could actually shift the conversation. I could say this competency model only acknowledges one type of leader and says that this is the way you should do it. Well, we should change it. And then I started to realize, oh, you're in that place of power so you can change it. And so I started to do more of that. And in the last year, started to really have this deeper reflection of doing this work, but recognizing I could do this work for one organization or I could figure out how to help multiple organizations. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the shift came into place because I wanted to see organizations and teams shift from a place of DEI on a shelf to DEI operationalized and in real action. And because I had done it, was doing it, 
was in the process of helping my own organizations that I had worked with do it, I felt like it was the right time to really branch out on my own and figure out how I help more organizations do it and not just say like, it's not possible because Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I'm kind of a real life case example of that's not true because Mm -hmm. it actually is because I've done that work. Wow. So how did work and even how you approached it look during the great awakening that we call the summer of 2020? Oh, that was fun. So, so I will say, I, I feel really lucky that the organization that I worked with at the time of the Great Awakening, if you will, where everyone realized like, oh, we're not done yet. People have been doing this work all <laughs> along. You know, the organization that I worked at was already in a place where they were ready to make those commitments. They were ready to talk about anti-racism and go there. We're having those conversations. I had been there mm-hmm. for almost a year when this happened. And I took that job intentionally as a senior leader. So sitting on their executive team instead, like, I'm not coming here to do this cookie cutter cultural (laughs) events. No offense, y'all. But like if your DEI strategy is cultural events and that's it and potlucks, we got real issues. And so (laughs) I I have lots of thoughts about potlucks. But, you know, I was really lucky in that I could make sure that my work was really geared towards, we've already started this conversation. How do we keep going? I started to recognize that my luck was definitely an outlier and was mm-hmm. not the, the space of others. And so I started mm-hmm. to share more online in ways that I hadn't before. There are many people who didn't even know that I had done this work for years because I never talked about it. I would talk about fitness. I would talk about my dog. I would talk about my personal life on Instagram. And I wrote a post and I will not forget it. And it was right after some of the heightened of the protests were happening around George Floyd's murder. And I wrote a post on a Saturday morning, eating breakfast, watching Martin. I would never forget it. And I wrote this post and the post was literally, you know, what should you not say to a Black person on Monday morning? And I wrote it with the intention of, I've got like 500 followers on Instagram. I'm going to share this so that as we go back to work, maybe one of them will see it and be like, hey, y'all, Don't bother them on Monday. This is not the Mm -hmm. time or the place. Like, do not come in and be like, my weekend was so amazing. How was yours? While the country is on fire and burning down. And I wrote that post. And then (laughs) I came into work on Monday. And a colleague of mine had shared that post and said, I saw this on Dynasty's Instagram. And I know she's already our DEI lead. I'm sure she's going to share it with us. But I want to share it with everybody. And I got a lot of support from my team, which was great. But I also had an inbox full of threats. I Mm. had an inbox full of thank yous. And I had an inbox full of everything in between. Threats of, you know, go back to Africa, kill yourself. Why would you say things like this? People who thought that they knew me because we had worked in similar spaces previously. I didn't know you thought like this. And and y'all, if you go back and read the post, like, there really is nothing controversial in it. It's just about like, be aware and be mindful. Mm-hmm. Kind of like if someone died, like you wouldn't come in the next day and be like, how you doing? Isn't everything mm-hmm. great? Same thing. And then I had posts of a lot of people saying, I'm so glad you wrote this because I can just forward this to my boss. I can forward this to my company because these are the things that I want to say, but that I can't say as yeah. a marginalized person because I know the impact. And that led to me being like, I can be quiet or I can continue to say the thing for those who right now are not in safe workplaces where they can. And that was sort of the journey that I went on and have been on uh, Mm -hmm. since the summer of 2020. Yeah. And I'm hearing two things. One, you know, there are people that felt unsafe during that time. Many of us did. And the the other thing I'm hearing is your post gave some people language because I think that's one of the things we've talked about in many conversation is hearing words and and ideologies misused because they're not fully understood. So it, it kind of leads me to the question of what's the difference between diversity, equity, And inclusion, because in your presentation in Building Allyship, I love that you 
dove deep there first, because I think yeah. the the most important thing when we're having these conversations is having a common understanding of what we're talking about. I think a lot of the misunderstandings are because my idea of diversity and your idea of diversity are totally different and that's fine, but it's going to be very difficult to have a conversation. So I want to hear the difference from you, the consultant. Yeah. Thank you for that question. And I will also say that to your point of it totally being fine, that there are differences between how people define diversity. I think it is totally fine. I think it is about like, are you listening? Are you understanding? Are you hearing people are coming from? And what's the intent behind your definition? Mm -hmm. So I see diversity as who you are, who makes up you as an individual, all your incredible multiple layers and dimensions of identity, which include race, which include gender, which include your sexual orientation, but are not limited to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are times where, one, people will intentionally talk about every other dimension of diversity besides race, because race is the most uncomfortable to talk about and it's the most uncomfortable to face. Because for a lot of people, when they have to face it, you also have to face the systematic inequalities and issues that our country has been built upon, continues to operate on, that for many of us, we're privileged around. And for many mm -hmm. of us, we are non-privileged around. But people mm -hmm. don't want to have that conversation. And so when I hear people talk about diversity, the immediate time I hear someone say, well, let me bring up race. It's like, no, no, no. Let me tell you about all my other dimensions of identity that I have and how we connect. Yes. And we have to yes, acknowledge that race is a part of how we navigate and how we are forced mm -hmm. to. Not that we want to, but how we are forced to operate in this country and in the systems in our workplaces. And to ignore it is to blatantly ignore a core piece of what do you do around it if you can't talk yeah. about it. Yeah. I think when I look at inclusion, I look at inclusion being how are you including dimensions of diversity into your workplaces, for example. However, I think there is both whole inclusion and then I think there is sub-inclusion. And okay. this is some new language that I'm testing out and I may change like how I phrase it, but I'm not going to change how I talk about it. Great, like, speak. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are organizations and workplaces who are like, Yes, bring all your dimensions of diversity that you feel comfortable bringing and those will be included and we will see you for who you are and include those in our spaces, include those in our conversations, acknowledge those and how we evaluate you from performance standpoints. I think that's whole inclusion. I think there are many organizations who are like, we're so inclusive, but the reality is they are sub-inclusive because they are inclusive to a subpopulation of the organization. Okay. This particular group who acts in this way, who identifies with these layers of dimension, get included. But if you don't act in that way, either you need to learn how to be a culture fit, you need to learn how to belong to our culture, or you're going to be excluded and you're going to be on the outside. Organizations say we're super inclusive. I'm like, are you holistically inclusive or are you sub-inclusive? And let's talk about that because if you're sub-inclusive, you're not really inclusive. And that's a conversation that I think a lot of organizations need to start having with themselves mm. because it shifts things and it shifts where people go with that. You're right. Right. And the last on equity, huh, equity is such a fun <laughs> conversation for me. I get on my soapbox all the time about this. So get on it. <laughs> so people will use the word equitable interchangeably with equity. They are not. And I repeat again, they are not the same thing. Equity says that I not only recognize that there are things that may be unequal that we need to fix and adjust, but I recognize that certain groups, certain historically and currently marginalized groups have had more inequities experienced to them. And therefore, there are certain strategies and approaches that we need to take to fix the inequity before we can get to a place of, an, of equitable. So you could say to someone, Hey, I gave everyone free tickets to go to the Usher concert in Vegas. 
I went there recently. It was wonderful. This is not a plug for Usher on the podcast, but if you happen to be in Vegas and you can go see the show, it's really good. But you go there and you give everyone free tickets. That's equitable. What's inequitable is, oh, we don't have an accessible ramp to make mm. sure that those that need to enter into the concert space in a certain way are able to like get there. Oh, you know, at the bar, they don't offer water. They just offer certain beverages to certain people who can't drink, can't get you know, beverage, even though they're thirsty. Oh, we're recognizing that even though it says it's an inclusive crowd, if you look a certain way or dress a certain way, people are going to stare at you and look at you funny and say, like, you don't really belong here and treat you like you're an outsider at the concert. Those are all ways that inequities happen. And for some reason, people get into this like, but we did something for everyone and don't mm-hmm. understand that doing something for everyone oftentimes means you only did it for the sub-inclusive population that already is benefiting from what you're putting together. That's how I define it. Okay, so definitely want to get into the conversation of understanding the consultant that you're looking for for your organization, because I do think this work skyrocketed after 2020. A lot of people wanted to do this type of work, which for people like you (laughs) who had been doing it, it, I think it made the space a little messier when other businesses were looking to hire. Mm -hmm. So when you're going into these organizations, what are you looking to address first? So, you know, I spend time talking about, do you have the foundational infrastructure in place to do this work? So are you clear on your definitions of DEI? Are you clear on why you might use the word justice or belonging or anti-racism? Do you understand what that means for your work and how that may change your approaches? I think a lot of times what I saw is most recently people using a lot of buzzwords, to your point anti-racism, justice. And I'm like, so what's your work stream? Like, what are you building around that? How do you integrate that? How are you going to integrate that into your core? Do you understand what it means when you say you're anti-racist? Like what you're going to hire, what you're not going to hire, what you're going to include and not include. And people are like, wait, wait, wait. I just thought if I could say the word, I'm like, no, 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 you got to do the work around it. Your work has to actually reflect your business has to operate in a way that then showcases and demonstrates anti-racist behaviors on a daily basis. So are you thinking about it in that way? And so I think that's the first piece of the conversation. I actually ask organizations to spend time writing guiding principles and a commitment statement. And let me be clear about this, because I, I know a lot of people are like, commitment statement, oh, that's not doing the work, that's just like checking a box. It is not about putting out a statement that says, we're committed to making sure that everyone feels like they belong. Those are the statements that you usually see. In the statements that we talk about, we talk about this element of guiding principles, which is how are you gonna do the work that you said that you're committed to do. And you said in your little top line, that cute little paragraph, that you're committed to being an inclusive place for all, that you're committed to equity across your organization. Great. So then I want to see principles that say things like, we are going to ensure at least 50% of the organization is representative of voices that are not what they historically have been in the organization. I want to know how you're going to like relinquish power and let power Mm. go from the top and spread Mm. that across. So your guiding principles are intended to be the things that you hold yourself accountable to so that you're not just saying, here's what we're going to say that we're committed to, and here's what we're going to do. Because then you see a lot of organizations being like, well, we we did a PIAS training. That is an outcome. That is an action. That is not a principle that I can Mm. go back to you and say, you said that you're committed and therefore these are the ways in which you are going to make sure your entire organization is operating and operating differently in terms of behaviors Mm -hmm. that drive this work forward. So we spend time there, along with spending time really looking at the infrastructures that people have set up to figure out, are they the right infrastructures? I have seen, Jen, so many DEI councils and committees and the only thing they do is work on event planning. I'm like, What's the point of that? I've seen so many like resource groups, employee resource groups and affinity spaces and no one's hearing their voice. And I'm like, what's the point of saying like, yeah, Black people get together. Are y'all okay? Like y'all got together, but we're not going to hear any of your opinions about what needs to change in the organization. We just wanted to give you like a few dollars and give you like an hour a month where you can like mm-hmm. just chat. 
Not not if that's what people, I mean, if that's what people want to do, great. But if people want to make real change, there also has to be space for that. That I spent a lot of time really looking at how to reevaluate and change things. And then from there, it is about how you operationalize it, how you look at every piece of your business, including your finances. Who who does money go to? Who do you fund? (laughs) What do you fund? What do you not fund? Who do you promote? Who do you compensate fairly? Who do you not? How do you make sure that what you say on paper actually lives out in practice? But a lot of times that starts with, you got to get really clear on what you're really trying to say about what you're mm-hmm. going to do. Yeah, it's funny that you said the buzzwords, though. I got to listen to Angela Davis back in uh, 2020, and she was saying DEI departments and consult that's all great work. But she said, what about the justice component? What about looking at why those who you are trying to include and represent now, why were they excluded? Why why did the structure not allow them to, why didn't it not invite them in? Because if you don't know why <laughs> they couldn't yeah. be in that, be, be their full selves in your space, then you really are kind of jumping into those action steps oh, yeah. versus actually looking at the system. Yeah. Oh yeah. And here, here's the reality too. I, it took me a long time to say this. And what I'm going to say is going to be controversial, but I'm going to say it because I do believe it. Not every organization is ready to do justice work. Some some organizations, which what you just need to do is you need to just start working on DEI. And I, I know it's controversial and I had trouble saying it because I don't want to give any organization out at all. I really struggled with that because personally I'm like, uh-uh, you got to do it with an anti-racism lens. But for some organizations and for some teams, you need to get your head wrapped around even just equity before <laughs> we can actually like go further and go there. And I think organizations who immediately are like DEIAJ, like they use all these different acronyms, are putting themselves in positions where when you start to really ask them, like, are you ready to do that work? They're like, no, but could they be? Yes. A year from now, a year and a half from now. And I'm not talking like you need to be ready 10 years from now, like that's too long, but like they could be. But there are some foundational elements that need to be actually be into the infrastructure. Because otherwise, let, let's say that you have an organization who's doing DEIJ work, but everyone across the organization, everyone has different definitions of what DEIJ, AJ means. Everyone has different principles or ideas in their head about how we should behave. No one's talked about them. They're in their head. And you find people just butting heads all the time. We're never getting work done. We're not moving anywhere. It's because people haven't talked to each other. People aren't on the same mm. page. And sometimes people need to get on the same page in order to know where they're going. So many organizations are skipping those steps and being like, we're doing justice work. And I'm like, you can't do justice work if the justice work isn't starting in-house and you don't, you haven't done that work for your own team. How can you do justice work if you're not even inclusive, if you're not even diverse as a team? What, <laughs> what are we talking about here? You got to do that stuff first. So you have all these... I heard this concept on another podcast called For the Wild, where the the person being interviewed, I'll link it in the show notes, but she was talking about the idea of multiple timelines. And she said people need to acknowledge that there are multiple timelines existing in all of the humans that are around you, and all of the work can't be done in the same room. And when she said that, I think I listened to that episode about 20 times because that's probably the biggest piece I felt in the last two years is the healing can't happen in the same room as the acknowledgement, as the working through the shame, as really uncovering what you believe. All of that can't happen together. But there's been such a pressure. And honestly, this is a topic that we've gone deeper with in the in the community with you. Some of that are supremacy culture traits. Yeah, the the urgency of, okay, but I feel the pressure, so I have to do the work. And I think that pushed, you can tell me better, but I think that pushed a lot of organizations to jump into contracts with people who said they did DEI work, but it really wasn't showing forth in the results these companies were getting. Yeah, I I think that's definitely been the case. I think there's also been a number of companies who didn't let... DEI folks who really got it and who could help them do their work. 
So I mm. saw a lot of like, this is what we need. Oh, we don't really need that. Oh, you want to talk to us about race? No, 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 we don't, we don't need to have that conversation. We need to have a biased conversation. And so that put people into positions where they couldn't actually get the organization where the organization is saying they wanted to go because the organization had diagnosed itself. How are you diagnosing yourself when you are the problem? Like, I, I, I want everybody to have that mm. level of self-awareness. I do. But I do not mm-hmm. think organizations have that deep of a level of self-awareness where they know every single problem. And I will tell you yeah. that I find that a lot of organizations will come in and be like, can you do an assessment or just like tell us like where we need to focus our efforts and I'll go in and talk to teams and do assessments. And I hear this over and over again, Jen. We've been saying this to them. This is not new information. We've mm. said this. We've said this in surveys. We've said this in forums. They have this information. They are choosing not to hear it and listen to it. So basically, they're paying you because maybe you listen to them because you're not listening. You're not listening to the people that actually are on the ground experiencing this every day, right. which is problematic. I also think that there is just this element of organization wanting a quick fix and not realizing the additional harm that that can cause, mm-hmm. particularly on the groups that have already been harmed by their like quick fix work and their organizational work cultures they thought were so great and are actually oppressive. There's been a lot of harm that's been caused and there's a lot of undoing that needs to happen as well in order for organizations to actually do this work. Because what I'm seeing now is a lot of organizations are like, oh my gosh, we're so tired. This work is so hard. We're feeling really stuck. And I'm like, you know, you're probably feeling stuck and the work probably feels tired because in my opinion, you you actually haven't done the work yet. You've been doing pre-work. You've been reading mm-hmm. books. You've been taking mm-hmm. general bias trainings. You've been like, oh, we're going to change our hiring practice and hire two more diverse people. And then we've got it. That is all pre-work. You haven't mm-hmm. actually engaged in the work. And yet you're tired and you're feeling stuck. It's because yeah. you haven't taken the time to really acknowledge what the work really is. That's actually He's just led perfectly into my next question because I've expressed to you when everything did happen on social media in the last two years, I felt like people were getting put in boxes of what they did. So I would get repost on my stuff that would say, oh, this activist, and it would send my my nervous system into a tizzy. And it was mainly because I knew the work that activists have done. I had studied the work that they have done and I didn't want to be put in that box. So when I when I heard all of the different titles that were being put forward, I also heard what people thought was the work that they should be doing. And we've talked about the difference between your individual work, which is the where I prefer to come in to help you guide you through that process and what business DEI strategy actually looks like. So I want you to kind of talk about the difference because I'm sure you've encountered people with those two different thought patterns. Yeah, I definitely have. And I will also acknowledge that I had the same apprehensions that you did about actors. I actually wrote a post and I was like, we need to honor, really meaningfully honor those who are doing activist work because that work is incredible. I go into organizations, I get paid and I'm like, let me push you activists. The work that they're doing is incredible. And to throw that title around, I have lots of issues with that <laughs> and actually really reject that title because that's that's not Amen. the lane that I sit in. And I would never try to pretend that I am there, nor do I think that I, I personally have the capacity to do that right now. Maybe one day, but not right now. So what I see with, with businesses and individuals is, I think a lot of times a business is like, great, if we can hire differently or change our compensation, do a pay equity audit, some of these things where you can check the box and get what you think is equity on the table, that it actually leads to change around people. But the reality is, is that there's two parallel tracks of work that need to happen. There's the individual work and there is the business work. And they have to happen at the same time because... Mm -hmm. If I don't do my own individual work and we're not asking everyone in our organizations to do their own individual work to progress in their journey, they will actually take a system that might actually lead to more equity and cause the exact same harm. I'll give you an example. Mm. If you change the performance review process and you say, we want to make it more equitable and you say, okay, we're going to change how people are evaluated. Great, because we're recognizing that 
black and brown individuals are being evaluated at a lower level across the board. Okay, that sounds good. So we've changed the policy, we've changed the business practice, but then the managers who ultimately make those evaluative scores annually each year still rate in the same way because they still have the same biases, the same blinders on because they haven't done their own work to understand how they show up in this space. Guess what? The performance evals going to come out exactly the same. Mm-hmm. The people are going to be bad. We did all this. We spent six months on this system. Yeah. But you didn't spend six months simultaneously on the people and pushing them too. And both have to go hand in hand in order for it to work. Mm-hmm. So that, that actually can lead back to what you said about how all businesses can't do all pieces of the work. They can't come in hot, let's say, with equity if they haven't really looked at some of the other components. Are there times when you've gone into an organization and recognized, okay, the the people in power aren't doing the individual work? Yeah. How do you navigate that? Because I don't feel like your individual stuff should be covered at work. And personally, I don't feel like everybody should be forced to it. Because I don't feel like that's true. Like, I don't feel like that will be authentic or aligned. So how do you navigate those situations? I agree with you. I had a really interesting conversation the last organization I worked at. It was a really good one amongst the team. And again, I deeply value them. Is there a lot of stuff that we all need to do in that organization still? Oh, yeah. So you know, I want to take the picture there. They've got it all together. And they would tell you the same thing. Well, we had this really good conversation where we were reflecting on, like, we also don't want to force people to go on the journey, to do their own Mm -hmm. self-reflective work, to do this work. And so we can't force you. We can set up spaces. We can be like, hey, we're having this time to talk about it. We're going to give you as many tools as we can as a business. We're not going to give you everything because some of it you can do on your own. We're going to give you as many tools as we can. But we can't force you to go to the trainings. We can't force you to engage in the conversations. We can't force you to do anything around your journey, but we can hold you accountable for outcome and how you're showing up. You don't want to like do all the things, you don't want to go on the journey, fine. But when we sit here and we find that you continue to evaluate Black people at a lower rate than white people consistently, we get to have a conversation Mm -hmm. around accountability. Mm. That's how we do this. So we don't have to force you to go on the journey, but we're going to force you to be accountable, at least in this workspace. And if you don't Mm -hmm. like it, we support you Going and going mm-hmm. somewhere else. There's plenty of places, unfortunately, that aren't there yet. And you're not going to be held accountable. You don't have to go on the journey. Then you can 100% go to that organization. But we over here yeah. are going to do it in this way. I think the other thing I would say around this is there's an element going back to your question around like leadership teams. I think one, there's a responsibility on consultants like myself to ask the questions of where is your leadership team, so there should mm-hmm. be no surprises. I shouldn't walk into an organization to be prepared to do six to 12 months work. And they're like, oh, the leadership team isn't bought in. I can't do work because I mm-hmm. already know that I'm going to get to a certain point and we're going to get stuck. And the people in power that have the most power and decision-making power are not going to approve things or it's going to be like railroaded over and over again. So why would I come in and do that to myself? Why would you internally want to do that to yourself? So that's the first mm-hmm. thing. So you've got to recognize that if you want to do this work internally and you know that the executive team isn't there yet, you just need to prepare yourself. You probably can get some things done. There will probably Mm -hmm. come a time where you will hit a glass ceiling and you will not be able to break through it. And then you will have to figure out like, am I okay? Just hanging out here and hoping and waiting that somebody wants to go on the journey on the executive team or am I frustrated? So like be Mm -hmm. realistic about that. I think the other thing is, is that pulling the executive team into conversations sooner and earlier and finding the people who can be starter anchors. It doesn't have to be the entire executive team immediately, but like the CEO, people with certain power, you know, the budget holders, like those folks, there could be a couple of people on the team that you can start with who can shift the other individuals. And I think that Mm -hmm. does and can lead to change. I also think, you know, at a certain place in time, CEO has to get involved and CEO has to say, like, maybe I'm not perfect at it, but I'm certainly not going to keep people on my executive team who don't want to go on the journey. And that is another conversation that has to be had in order to move progress. Got it. So 
the logistical part. When you are going into an organization yeah. business, what are some of the components that you're examining first? And I know it's different because every every business is different, but generally yeah. speaking, what are like what are you looking at first to say let's let's examine and assess? Mm-hmm. So I'm typically looking at how the executive team is interacting in these conversation spaces, how they're showing up. What's the role of the DEI manager or leader or counsel and how they're showing up, what they're doing, what they're not doing. And then I always like to have conversations and do what I call like equity dialogue spaces where I can understand what people are experiencing and hear from myself what they're experiencing. And I always ask to talk to Black, Brown individuals. I ask to talk to women. I ask to talk to LGBTQIA individuals because I want to hear their stories. But also I want to hear like the real stuff, what's really going on. Because, I mean, like the executive team could be like, we have a few issues, but generally, like, I think we're doing good. I mean, you can get into one of those groups and people could be like, it's because they didn't hear me. And here's all the stuff that mm-hmm. I've been telling them for four years. And so yeah. I want to know that because that'll help me understand, like, oh, this is what you told me we were going to work on. Now let me tell you what we need to work on. Okay. There's a lot of different identities that people can have when you're looking at equity. And we, of course, we bring up the term intersectionality when we talk about some of this stuff, but what should be focused on first in our training in building allyship, you talked about racial equity. And I I think one of the things that I have seen and said is, yes, there are several identities that have been marginalized, but if you can ever lay back on your whiteness, like if you can ever just fall back on it, no matter what, then you probably should assess like how marginalized your identity really is. So I kind of want you to talk around that. Yeah, you know, I think there is just this element of people weaponizing the term intersectionality, mm. which, you know, we have to give credit to Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw for coining and coming yes. up with and creating. But I, I think people were weaponizing it and using it to their own definitions or advantage. Because what I hear is if I say like, I'm a black woman, then a white woman will say, I'm a woman too. So we understand each other. And I'm like, but do we? Because there's a layer of identity that I hold that you don't, that gives you a level of privilege, whether you acknowledge it or not, that you have that I don't in our experiences, the way we move are different. And so I think there is this layer of people understanding that, yes, there are different aspects to intersectionality, But to avoid race in the conversation is to avoid a core thing that actually impacts the experiences of how people potentially will experience other layers of their identity. Mm -hmm. And I really am disappointed to see so many people use it in ways that are like, let me compare the intersectionality Olympics. Let me let me compare with you. Let me tell you, like, oh, you're a black woman living in America. Well, I am a white male who identifies as LGBTQIA+. And so we get it. We're the same. No, we are not. And for you not to acknowledge that, for you to pretend like our intersectionalities make us the same Mm -hmm. and give us the same experiences are deeply problematic. And so I think there's work for people to, let me be clear, there's work for white people to do to stop weaponizing that and using that Mm -hmm. to connect and be a part of the conversation. Be a part of the conversation by, yes, holding your identities true, Mm -hmm. but be a part of the conversation by acknowledging your power and privilege and naming that as well. That's all you have to do. I had a great question in a training a couple years ago. It was a white gay male and he was owning his whiteness and saying, oh, no, I know I can fall back on it, but how do I find the people who actually need the privilege that I have if there are still rooms I don't feel safe in. And we came to the understanding of, okay, but what rooms do you feel safe in? And why do you feel safe in those rooms? Mm -hmm. Now look around Mm -hmm. and see who doesn't feel safe. Ask more questions because that will help you identify the people that actually could use the power that your privilege brings. I mean, look, the reality is like if all of us did that, we're each other. Looked around and realized the rooms that we didn't feel safe in. And there was somebody in the room that recognized they did feel safe and made the room safe. 
I, I could go do something <laughs> else. I've got other, I could, I got other things that I could do. I could, but we don't do that, right? Like we don't take the time to recognize that. And also I think we just overcomplicate things. We're like, where's the book? Where's the manual? I need to read this like book on allyship in order to be an ally. And I'm like, no, just, just do. Can you just show up and treat human beings like human beings? <sighs> oh. And that is also, that is also a symptom of white supremacy traits and culture. Uh, I need mm. the written word. I need to have a framework. You need to tell me exactly what to do and then I'll do it in that way versus recognizing like you don't have to right. do all that. It doesn't have to be this overthinking that needs to happen in order for you to actually show up and make spaces safe and do it for one another. This it's is a, hard. This is a, I know this question could probably trigger a lot of people. However, I'm asking anyway. Do you think that the responses of some black and brown folk have cemented that supremacy trait of you don't know enough. Hmm. You know, one of my big things now is oh. racial identity development and talking about how even we form our own racial identity in the context where we are the marginalized population. And there's a phase in there where it's pretty much <laughs> F the world. Like I hate everyone who doesn't look like me. And I think those are important phases to go through. I don't want to ever make it seem like it's a toxic phase. It's necessary. It's literally part of your development. But how we communicate when we're in these phases, I think sometimes it can perpetuate that ideology of I got to know more. I haven't I haven't listened enough. I haven't read enough. And I guess that's the part that I'm starting to see come forth. Yes, you already have that. You already feel like you have to show up, you know, prepared in, in all of these different spaces, even not about allyship, anti-racism, any of this stuff. But when you're being told, sit down and shut up. <laughs> and there's no, there is no manual. There is no timeline. It, it What I have found in the community is, it, it did take a lot of work to say, okay, let's move. <laughs> Two things can be true at once. You can need to know more and you can also do at the same time. Yes, I do think there are black and brown individuals who are so focused on it's just about us and not about like the larger community that it can impede progress, but also it can impede them like exploring like how might they be internalizing mm. white supremacist oppression in ways that they don't understand that they are? I don't fault no. them because it's a protection mechanism and a coping mechanism for what they've continued to experience. And to be said, like, sit down and shut up. Well, fine, I'm going to get my group of people and I'm going to create my own sub-inclusive environment, right? Like, so this is me creating my sub-inclusive environment of people that look like me that get my culture that I can feel included with. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to worry about trying to be wholly inclusive in the same way you're not trying to be wholly inclusive. So now we got all these sub-inclusive environments. Right. So I think that's real. I think the other end of the perspective is those who are like, well, sit down and be quiet. And then we'll, we'll get our 40 acres and a mule. We'll get our reparations. Mm -hmm. Or Clarence Thomas's, I'm going to change the laws. <laughs> And I, I believe in white supremacy culture so much mm -hmm. that I'm going to take everything away because I believe that that is the right way to go. And so I think there's problems along the whole perspective. Mm -hmm. I even think like the, where we sit, where we're like, we can holistically connect with everyone. We want holistic inclusion probably is problematic because there's probably just a percentage of us like naively that we're like, we can holistically make everyone inclusive. And there are just people, white folks or whoever there's people, there's brown people. There's people that we think are on our side who are like, yeah, I'm not going to do that with you. And so I think there's problems on all sides, but I think the two extremes are, I'm going to create my own sub-inclusive mm -hmm. environment and not work across lines mm -hmm. of identity to connect. Or I'm going to be so focused on upholding this one identity of whiteness that I can't see the forest from the trees about like, what does that, what does that do to my and I, I And I ask this, it may seem like it's off the cuff of what we've been talking about, but you're not just going into environments that are majority white. You're, you are coming into environments with so many different perspectives and backgrounds and lived experiences. 
you're facing this and, and other consultants are probably facing it. So I just, I always wonder like, how, how does that manifest when you're trying to do this type of work? And you do have people who are marginalized who are saying, nah, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do yeah. this work. And I think that goes back to fine. You don't have to be on the journey, but at least in a workplace, mm-hmm. what can I hold you accountable for? Right. I think that's what it goes back to. Now, outside of work, whole different, mm-hmm. whole different. Well, I can't hold you accountable to your yeah. community. I don't know how to do that. And so much love and appreciation for those who are on the ground, like doing the mm-hmm. true community work that needs to be done. Because I do think it impacts workplaces and everything else. All the time I say to people, people are like, you do such great work. And I'm like, nah. My work is subpar to people that are on the ground. Mm. Let's just be clear about yeah. that. Because I, I get to like log off of Zoom calls and I'm done versus what they see and they experience each day. But what I will say is, is that I think that there is a level of, I have to acknowledge that you're not on the journey and that I can't take everyone with me and that I can give you tools mm-hmm. and that I can give you resources and encourage you to go on the journey. But I can't wait for you to get there but I also can't allow you to impede me to get there. There have been many a time where I've been in the room as a consultant and someone who looks like me from an identity standpoint has said something that I have been like that is going to set us back five years, not 400, but like five years as an organization. And I might call them and say like, hey, that was really harmful in the room. And let me tell you why that is because they were about to make a shift that was actually going to lead to more equity for Mm -hmm. everyone and what you just did was you just excused them and said, no, 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 no. You're not wrong. You're not doing anything harmful. I think mm. it's good. And I, and I would say like, do you really believe that? Well, no, but I'm trying to keep my job. That's okay, real. Cool. Well, then maybe you should keep your job and do that quietly on a Zoom screen and let me do what I am c- coming in to do for you, which is like be that voice and like shout from the mountaintops y'all are messing yeah. it up. But that's also a hard conversation <sighs> to have because I have to recognize that like that's putting me in a position where I'm deciding like I am mm-hmm. the answer. I know the right way and I have to be very mindful of that. There's such a there's such a balance of like do I have the answer or not and how do I stay humble because I don't yeah. know it all. I wish I could tell you that I did but I don't. There are times where I get it wrong too. But I can tell you that like when I'm fighting for us and I see people who are actively fighting against mm-hmm. fighting for us, it deeply unnerves me. And it's something yeah. that I'm working through. I haven't decided that I need to work yeah. through it and change it. Let me be clear. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something that I'm working through because it unnerves me to varying degrees of just wanting to be like, like going mm-hmm. on a different chat and being like, yeah. you need to log off because you're not, you're not helping right now. I think it's and it's a definitely a de- delicate conversation for us to have because, you know, you you know, the healing that has to take place for you to even be able to do this work. <laughs> and okay. it also goes back to everything in that ideology of white supremacy being a construct, which is why some of the trigger words now I'm just like, I don't even have to use them, but I can actually explain them so that who needs to see themselves in this definition, can see themselves. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I've been taking a long social media break. One, because 2020 did a number on me, 2021, and then I was like, I'm done. <laughs> I didn't want to be known as the person who every time something happens to our community and to us, like, I'm, I, what is Dynasty going to say? And I'm just going to reshare and post it. I was exhausted. I also, you know, got married, mm-hmm. got pregnant, mm-hmm. out of home, moved cities. So I also was just like, I just need to take time Mm -hmm. for me. But in this time, it's allowed for me to step back and step out of some things and just to observe and to listen and to process what I'm seeing as a consultant, what I'm seeing in other organizations, what I'm seeing with individuals. It's been really helpful for me to kind of like quiet the Mm -hmm. noise and there's so many things that I have new perspectives on that I'm now ready to share, but I think I will, I think I will always now be more protective of the time of like being in spaces where I'm amongst a lot of noise and I can't filter out what it, what makes sense for me. Because if I can't filter through the noise, it's not going to help me heal because I'm so busy trying to respond to the noise 
that I can't do my own healing work. And I also can't reflect on like, what is it that organizations really need? Mm -hmm. Like that whole infrastructure, I have a whole model that I take organizations through around it. It's probably been spinning in my head for years doing this work, but I haven't been able to put it down on paper until about three months ago because the noise was too loud. Mm-hmm. And now the noise is quiet and I can see it. And I'm like, These, this, this is it. Yeah. At least for the organizations that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. And it's really clear. And they're like, oh, this is really clear. And I'm like, but it's been there. But because I needed to do some work to quiet the noise, I couldn't get it out. I couldn't help people. Yeah, I think that was the conversation we had at a coffee house. Was it probably the end of last year or the beginning of this year where it just got, yeah. it It was so invasive that, I mean, I know I stepped away because I wanted to give all my energy to the people who signed up for Building Allyship to join that community right. and were really there to say, hey, no, 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 I want to learn. I want to know. I want to do. Yeah, that being the fly on the wall can be so helpful in in organizing your own thoughts. And actually, I've been doing it a lot more lately where I just don't listen to anything. If I want to hear my voice, <laughs> like I love perspective. And if I need it, I know, I know who I trust, whose voice I trust and who I want to listen to. But a lot of it is saying, no, 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 no. What do I believe? What do I value? And and asking myself that on a regular basis, because I get challenged and I love being challenged because it solidifies my voice, my message. So if an organization is looking to hire someone like you, I believe there should be an interview of several's. <laughs> But what questions should they ask the consultant or the company so that they can have effective work done when they partner with them? Yeah. I think they should ask the consultant three different questions. One, how they approach the work. So how how will the work get done? How do they approach it? I think the second question is what are their beliefs? Because if I have a belief that like, we don't need to talk about anti-racism, but you want to talk about Mm anti-racism, we are not aligned. So we should talk about that. And then I think the third is what's the consultant's journey, personal journey been, and how are they going to show up as their full self and potentially challenge people Mm -hmm. in the room to do the same and to go on Uh the journey. And I think those three questions matter a ton. I will also say, just to put it out there and put it on record, that I think there's a lot of organizations who are going through what we call... RFP processes where you like go through a bidding process or it's a request for proposal and you see organizations send these out and they are 20 to 30 pages of like, show me like all your work products, tell me about yourself, all these things that are DEI. I think they are deeply Mm. oppressive. I think they are deeply written with white supremacy culture traits and I think they need to be removed. There, There absolutely should be an interview. It should not be a 20 to 30 page document that I'm creating for you to prove to you Mm -hmm. that I can do this work. We can have a conversation and you can decide if I'm going to be the right Right. fit for you. And for some people, I'm not. And that's okay. But like, that's what my website is for. That's what my (laughs) YouTube is for. That's what my Instagram is for, my blog post. Like, I'm pretty open and honest. You want to know what I think? You want to know how I'm going to approach it? Go read about it. Go listen to it. Go Mm -hmm. hear me talk about it in places like this. What I'm not going to do is to give you 30 pages of why it's me versus right. someone else. So flip flip side, we've already talked about the people who have just declared themselves DEI strategists, DEI consultants. One, how do you know that that is work that you can do? Two, what are some things you should probably ask yourself to know if these spaces with organizations are appropriate for you. <laughs> I'm laughing because the immediate question that comes to mind is, <laughs> this is a terrible question, a terrible way to ask it. Do you know what you're doing? Like, do you have any sense of what you're doing? I think there's a lot of well-intentioned and really smart and capable mm-hmm. folks who are like, I want to do this work and have mm-hmm. no idea where to start and what to do. And I just believe if you're going to consult about it, you should know something deeply about it, whether you've done the work like I have and sat in teams and led this work deep, like directly, or you've studied and understood enough where you can translate Mm -hmm. that into action. And so I don't know if there's a ton of questions as much as it is like, 
I really want people to examine why they're doing the work. There are so many people in the last two years that went from like HR consultant to all of a sudden they're in the DEI space and they're having people read like Brene Brown, like Dare to oh. Lead. And that is how we like talk about race in an organization. Oh, yeah. What? What? Like Brene, but yeah. Told you. <laughs> what? Who told you to do that? And like when I look at stuff like that, I'm like, well intentioned you're actually going to cause more mm. harm. So like, seriously, ask yourself, do you know what you're doing and what you're mm-hmm. doing it for? Um, and have you done mm. your own work to get to the place where you can go in and truly have these conversations and push people to do the work mm-hmm. too? Because if, you, if right. you have it, you haven't done the healing, you haven't done your own work, it's not the right time. Mm. It might it might be your time, but it's not the right time right yeah. now. You've got some stuff you need to do. So I love it. Thank you for that. Something you yeah. mentioned actually in one of our trainings was the social ecosystem. Yes. So IRS, IRS social yes. like ecosystem where they talk about, I'm going to get the name wrong. So it's not that, but we'll link it for you all in the yes. show notes, I'm sure. But it talks about the varying roles that you can play in this work and that you can't be everything to everyone. So you need to figure out like what your lane is in this work. And everyone should not be an advising, consulting, advising organization on how to do this work differently. Like that is yeah. not your lane. Yeah. You might be the person that just needs to go and post some things on social media for a while and reflect on what you've learned. But I also feel like it's kind of icky because people are like, oh, I can see a dollar sign there. And I'm like, that's yeah. icky. Because you're tying that to actual human yeah. bodies and the experience of an actual mm. human being to, I can make money right. off this work. Do I get paid from this work? Yes. But I get paid because that is how I pay my bills, not because I'm like, I made right. a ton of money from this. I actually want to see organizations yeah. change. I fundamentally believe that they can. Now, do I believe that organizations can be truly 100% through and through anti-racist? No, because they are funded or they raise funding. Mm-hmm. And so there's a capital me- mechanism that I think is there. But do I think they can get close? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. But I, I no longer, when people would say like, we want to be an anti-racist organization 100% through and through. I'm like, you can't. There's money involved. <laughs> Unless you're going to be anti-capitalism too. I'm like, not taking money. Like, We're going to come back for another episode on I, that. I don't believe. We're gonna... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, talk, we'll, we'll definitely come back. And I will definitely link the, <laughs> the ecosystem in yeah. the show notes because there's also a lot of education on YouTube surrounding the different roles that I think is very helpful. Well, so is there anything else that you would love to share with the people or an action step that you could give them? Wow. I would just say to people that are feeling stuck or feeling like this was really exhausting, I'm really tired. I want you to think about all the people who on the other side have been experiencing the inequities, the exclusivity, over the course of years and how mm-hmm. they feel and your tiredness can't match that. So if you are waning or feeling stuck, it's time mm-hmm. to get unstuck. It's time to mm-hmm. pick it back up and like to like lifelong commit to it and not in a like, oh, because I'm tired, I can stop way. But because again, to the earlier point, you want to create spaces that are safe for others. That's yeah. lifelong work. And that means like, if you want it safe for you, you got to make it safe yeah. for other people too. Thank you so much. So if they want to work That's with you, yeah. where can the people find you? Yep. You can go and you can reach out to us. So my website is dynastyhunt.com. You can fill out the form. We are taking new organizational consulting clients. I should name that if we're doing work with you, it is a six month minimum. We really want to get in there and it wants we want it to be deep work. We want it to be truly a partnership. And so it's, it can't be like, hey, I want a single training. I want you to come and do this one workshop. I don't offer them because I don't believe they lead to any real change. But we are accepting new clients, so you can reach out there. If you're interested in socials, you can follow me if you find me on Twitter, Instagram. They're all under Dynasty Hunt. And we also have an active newsletter that you can sign up for through my website. 
where I actually give you really concrete tips about how to apply this work every single week, every single Tuesday in your business. And I will make sure all of that is linked in the show notes for everyone who is listening. Dynasty, I just want to first say thank you for coming on and sharing your energy and sharing your wisdom, but also thank you for doing this work. It's not the type of work where you get a result, you know, immediately after one action step. And I know that that type of thankless work can wear on you. So I just want to say thank you for for doing this work, for stepping into your power and trying to make this place a little better for all of us humans. Thank you. No, I appreciate the work that you do. And thank you to the organization to allow me to come in and be like, you're doing what? No. Get a little, I think a little bit of a shout out because they allow for me to really it. push them. I love it. Thank you all so much for listening. If you like this episode, please let me know and leave a review. Until next time, this is Dr. J-Pop on the Beyond Allyship Podcast.